Welcome to the Noble Ape Podcast, State Reality. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today, podcast with a very cute name, Planes, Trains, and Automata. I was originally going to break this podcast down just to discuss the hobbyist aspects of artificial life and talk a little bit more about why I think there are strengths in the hobbyist model of artificial life and why I think there are weaknesses. I was going to get some history with regards to how the name hobbyist came about, and that's not actually reflected in any of my notes. So I will freeform between my notes and those particular topics. There's a great degree of discussion about what artificial life is, it seems like it's almost a secondary hobby to the practitioners of artificial life to muse about what artificial life is. It was a favourite topic in the biota.org conversations. I don't think we came any closer to the answer, and really I'm not that much closer to the answer myself. But I say, having in some sense floated the term, well, let's start with the origins of the term. The idea of a hobbyist artificial life developer, from my own thinking, came explicitly out of what was originally called Darwin at home and then went on to become Biota at home. And somewhere in the status document, the white paper that was originally written, someone and I can't remember whether it was me or, I can't remember the fellow's name, he was called Ian. He's very discussive on the neat mailing list and the fact that I can't think of his name now. Probably shouldn't affect the remainder of this podcast. Anyway, somehow the term hobbyist was interjected in the discussion with regards to the kind of people that were involved with artificial life. And I've run with it ever since. It's kind of a lukewarm word for me currently, like a warm cup of tea basically and I think it really is extraordinarily descriptive with regards to the kind of folk that are producing active artificial life that you can see on the internet there is an academic strain to artificial life and I don't want to in any way diminish that because I think there is a lot of exciting stuff that's going on in the academic strain of artificial life the artificial life journal that comes out of MIT press is the tome with regards to artificial life the academic strain of artificial life and I think there is some overlapping John Klein I think acts as a kind of informal ambassador between the academics on one side and the hobbyists on the other but I'm a hobbyist, I've never really been an artificial life academic, never really considered that as a possible option and in some sense actively see it in a kind of childlike rebellion that one can actually be a hobbyist and I believe, and this is something that we will discuss a little bit more through this podcast I believe you can actually make productive academic feedback and still be a hobbyist I think there is some embryonic interchange between on one side the hobbyist developers of artificial life and on the other side the academics of artificial life it has not occurred recently aside from John Klein perhaps to a lesser extent Marcia Komachinsky my feeling is that there is a lot going on on the hobbyist side there's a lot going on on the academic side and I have recently I think given gift subscriptions two gift subscriptions to the artificial life journal to artificial life folk on the hobbyist side who I think could actively make a contribution on the academic side and maybe break this membrane down a little bit so when you talk to artificial life academics, and I've talked to a few of them through the biota.org interviews podcast, you start to wonder about where the various pieces of this puzzle that create this thing called artificial life reside. Whether they reside on the academic side, whether they reside on the hobbyist side, and it ultimately reduces down into is artificial life science, is artificial life social science, is artificial life pseudoscience, is artificial life art, or is artificial life a hobby? And I think through my own musing, it touches on all of these aspects. Let's talk a little bit about artificial life as a science first. Now, I don't necessarily think that all these things are separate. I think there's a good degree of venting. And I think artificial life resides somewhere in the van. But in terms of the scientific component that artificial life can provide, the whole area of computational theoretical biology, to a lesser extent, computational theoretical 
physics and physical chemistry and these kind of things, there are components of artificial life that are helpful there. I see a kind of utility in a lot of what is done with artificial life, but at the same time, perhaps a, a testing ground, a theoretical testing ground with regards to some of these components. I think the physics that you need to create in artificial life environments tends to differ very greatly from realistic physics. And what fascinates me, in particular when I talk to people like Bruce Damer, for example, who does simulation work for NASA in terms of lunar rovers and these kind of things, is that there is a point where the physics breaks down in terms of computer simulation. If you make the dust, the actual grain size, the actual dust, it doesn't behave like dust. You need to simulate it almost as a pebble in order to get it to behave with the kind of physically realistic, visibly realistic dust-like properties. It always fascinates me that there is some breakdown in the physics in terms of describing the actual situation. And this, in some regard, creates some of the bizarre kind of computer game graphics situations that you get which are completely removed from reality but in fact obey the Newtonian physics and some post-Newtonian physics that goes into these kind of computer game simulations. So what fascinates me is that artificial life in terms of its utilitarian contribution to science forces you to approach things that you would normally approach through very strictly Newtonian methods or things like that using different models of physics and this is what fascinates me that there is in fact a kind of extreme theoretical physics in areas of theoretical physics that have not really, if you said theoretical physics to a kind of contemporary physicist, they would never think that there were theoretical components in terms of simulating dust granularity. But then you have compressible fluid flows and these kind of things, which in simulation sense is pretty well defined, computational simulation. But the way in which they're used in artificial life simulations is distinctly different. I really, 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 in the next decade, if I'm going to do anything other than no-blame, want to write an ocean simulation. I think that's really fascinating to me. And I would probably start with the tides. This comes through a little bit in the book project, but I think if I'm going to create a new simulation in the next decade, it will certainly be an ocean simulation. Because the physics in water, and particularly the thermal physics and the macro versus micro, I just think is completely fascinating something that would produce visually stunning effects. I think it was also there's a game coming out called Bioshock which is all done underwater and it's got a lot of press just from the fact that it's underwater. I think you know there are other fluids that could be possibly simulated but water has a, an amazing ability to convey emotions and I think to see artificial life in water and really rich artificial life in water is something that people may be receptive to. There is a psychological stigma that some people have with regards to water and the ocean and things like that. My wife is very I think it's probably aquaphobic or something like that. Doesn't like the beach, doesn't like the ocean. It was central part of my childhood, the, the water and the ocean. So these are the ideas in science that can be part of artificial life in some regard. And I think in terms of biology, which is always talked about, and physics and chemistry, which is less talked about, you know, there are components in artificial life that can be very useful to that. Whether it will result in new stuff being discovered and new theories and new ideas, time will top. But I think there's certainly a good thing there. And the social sciences, and this in some regard is a critical analysis of what I did with Noble 8 too. There's a lot that artificial life could contribute. I'm always impressed to see political scientists in particular, maybe sociologists and folks like that, developing artificial life simulations and I think that's great. I think the real strength in terms of discussive research in artificial life in an academic sense, in some regard has come through the social sciences. It's not actively represented, I don't think, or not actively represented enough in the artificial life journal. But what fascinates me is the use of Swarm in particular to construct social science simulations. 
I think there's a lot to be done with artificial life in the social sciences. And certainly, if you're going to do a critical analysis of Noble Eight, that's what I was interested in with the construction Noble Eight was creating. An environment where you could fundamentally interpolate from the structure of the landscape the way the societies would evolve. Was there a causal connection between living in a particularly arid part of the world and the kind of societies that evolved from that? And I thought computer simulation was perfect for that in 1996. I think it's perfect for that in 2007. And there are a number of social scientists that agree with me with regards to their own areas of study. So there's obviously a good then with uh, the social sciences and artificial life. And I think that's really an emergent part of, of what artificial life is going to be seen and contributing in as the social sciences. I'm always fascinated by the fringes of science and it's something that strikes me that part of what is now contemporary science was at some stage on the fringes of science. Every aspect of science has kind of migrated from the fringes towards the centre in some regard and the membranous barrier between pseudoscience and science I think is very much a, a, a popular pastime. I mean this is the whole sceptical movement in some regard is you want to know whether it's science or whether it's pseudoscience and it, it begs the question whether artificial life resides any of artificial life resides in the pseudoscience. Well I think there's a lot of belief associated with artificial life. I think my own development of artificial life is with regards to blind hope and my feeling is that that is often the realm that pseudoscience exists in. I'm really fascinated to hear in this practical example the trialogues which is a discussion between Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake, all of whom, well, in the case of Terence McKenna, now deceased, case of Abraham, I think he's still an academic, a professor of mathematics at Santa Cruz. And the case of Sheldrake, someone who has been kind of on the, the fringes of, of science and, and pseudoscience, and they all have their kind of pet pseudosciences that they like to maintain. A fascinating discussion, thanks to Bruce Damer, actually. Bruce Damer got the tapes from Abraham, re-recorded them and, and put them out in MP3 form. If you're interested in hearing them, because they were very formative in my own creation of particularly the bioconversations section. Please email me, I'll, I'll get you the URL links. Fascinating, fascinating discussion of kind of free form, where do we start science and the kind of radicalization of science in some regard, the conservatization of science, and they all have their own kind of pet pseudosciences they want to kind of push into science and most of them I disagree with fundamentally but it's a great kind of freestyling conversation to talk about what is pseudoscience what is science, the fringes of these discussions, how the contemporary scepticism movement wanders through that. Obviously you have atheism and now, you know, various political libertarian views and leftist views as well. Let us not forget uh, entering into this discussion of science. There is still not a really an active discussion of the idea of junk science. My father is currently writing on trust of economic results and economic understanding and the trust of economic information. I've always juxtaposed that with regards to trust in science and the kind of information that scientists are publishing and where they're getting their funding sources from. And for folk like John P. Daigle, they don't mind. They think all science is created equal. My view is that some science is avoided because of where money is coming from. But that, in some sense, is part of this whole pseudoscience narrative. So, are there parts of artificial life that are pseudoscience? I think there's a good deal. I think there's a great degree of fluff that comes along with artificial life, which is actually the fun part. 
there are no noble apes, there are no fierce felines, there are none of these creatures that exist out there. Similarly, there are no real creatures that are like the Darwin at home membranes. There are no real creatures like the stuff that Carl Sims created that Jonathan Klein picked up for Brevet. These things are all part of a, a fantasy, a beautiful fantasy, which ultimately exists in, I guess, some pseudoscience realm, or possibly in the realm of art. And I'm regularly reminded by the the artificial life artistic community is probably the most vibrant in terms of just general sporadic communication. I know every five, maybe ten months, I will get a, an email from Joseph Novichatel, who sends me emails. He seems to step between New York and Paris perfectly. But this whole idea that artificial life has a really strong assistive component to art in some regard, and that even prior to computers there was artificial life in art, which I find fascinating, kind of platonic discussion with regards to artificial life and how it exists in art. So yes, I think there is the element of art in artificial life, and certainly in my own discussion with regards to how artificial life is represented to life, the whole discussion of what is the life part in artificial life, I always use the artist description. Basically, the artist paints reality. What is represented in the painting is a view of reality. What is represented in the artificial life simulation is a view of life. It can be a different aspect. It can be surrealist, this kind of stuff. But it's the same kind of relationship, I think, in a lot of what is simulated. And to a certain extent, there's been a strong relationship between art and science. I mean, if you look at line art and the strengths of line art and biology, all these things kind of come together. So I'm very happy with the idea of the artist as part of artificial life. Finally, I wanted to talk about the artificial life hobbyist, and this is really the slums of artificial life development. Perhaps a slum landlord, perhaps a slum tenant, and it's something that fascinates me, absolutely fascinates me. I am, I'm not interested in sport. I do like outdoor activities. I go hunting with my father-in-law. I don't fire guns at animals, but I certainly go along for, for the wander and I carry the guns that they're not using and dogs run through the fields and stuff. So I'm kind of pragmatic environmentalist in some regards. I do really love being out in the wilderness. My time spent camping has always been fun and I just love getting back to nature in some regard. So, but aside from the naturalistic hobbies and things like cycling, which I do less frequently now, walking for long distances, I'm fascinated by nerd hobbies. I mean, I play music and do other things like that. But don't watch sports. But I'm really fascinated by these nerd hobbies. There are some nerd hobbies I just can't get into. Science fiction television, for example. Films. I'm pretty heavily opposed to large aspects of popular culture in that regard. But, uh, you know, things like war gaming, building model planes, now or through a workmate's interest in model railways, reading about this kind of stuff. It all fascinates me in some regard, and the kind of obsessive engineering mentality and the way that one can kind of deconstruct reality into these hobbies seems to all lend itself to artificial life. I mean, the more I read in particular hobbies, the more I hear echoings of what is actively discussed in artificial life frequently. Now, through this workmate and through reading, well, there is only really a, a single model train magazine in the US. I uh, subscribed to the magazine in order to get it for a ridiculously low amount. And funnily enough, actually, I'm recording this podcast on a DVD case of what I'm going to now sample from. But, you know, they, they send you DVD propaganda as well as the magazine, so... I'm going to now sample from a model railway enthusiast talking about model railways. It's an art form. 
Uh, model railroaders as a, are conceived as overaged, overweight adults, usually male. Unfortunately, it doesn't have to be that way, but 99% are male. That were conceived as fools that never had a good, the good sense to put their trains away after Christmas. And it's not that way. It is an art form. It encompasses many skills. And better than the word skill, I like to use the word challenge. Because the challenges are carpentry, model building, horticulture, electronics. You can go on and on. Even computer technology. And it's, uh, it's sort of like, you know, it's a... Uh, microcosm of everything in life. And the thing that strikes me about this is this is an artificial life developer. You remove model railways and put in artificial life, and you basically have an artificial life developer. You have an artificial life hobbyist. And the same passion with regards to these folk building their model railways and possibly, you know, building, you know, model planes and flying radio controlled planes and all these kind of things. Some fringe interest as well. We have developing artificial life. It struck me as an intellectual kind of paradigm shifting moment. Just this caught me as soon as I heard the sample that I've just put in the podcast that this is exactly what it's about it's just about tinkering it's a tinkering hobby that's the thing with artificial life and all the stuff i've talked about in terms of science social science pseudoscience art fundamentally it's just a hobby for a lot of us and is that a bad thing is that going to work against us is this something that is going to be problematic i'm going to talk about this in the next podcast because i think this is a fascinating topic of where you get from as a hobbyist whether you can make actual changes in all the other things that is discussed and whether a popular perception of artificial life is fundamentally described by the idea of the artificial life hobbyist perhaps the artificial life academic and what these two different pictures that the popular community may see and how it reflects on actually communicating a message with regards to artificial life so that is going to be the next podcast thank you very much for tuning into this discussive rambling that's resulted in this conclusion look forward to you tuning into the next podcast